Well, for this uh, evening's lesson, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the importance of truth. I'm going to touch a little bit on some of what I touched on on uh, this past Lord's Day. I think a lot of people disagree over what we would call truth. You would have some that would even ask, is there even such a thing as absolute truth? And there's really only two possible answers to this question. The answers really would have to either be, yes, there is such a thing as absolute truth. For example, 2 plus 2 has an absolute answer, and the answer is 4, and it's always 4. Or the answer is no, there's no such thing as absolute truth, and therefore 2 plus 2 could equal 3 or 5 or 7 or, or any other answer. So there's either absolute truth, and what I mean is, is there's something that is always uh, the correct answer at all times and for all people in all places, right? Two plus two is the same here in Michigan as uh, the answer would be in Indiana or Kentucky or Illinois or Missouri or Montana or anywhere else, right? There's absolute truth there. Uh, or there is no such thing as absolute truth and the answers to whatever your questions are could vary based on uh, where you live, uh, how you were raised, and things like that. And, and many of you have probably even heard that. You know, how is it fair to claim that Christianity is the one and only true faith? Because, I mean, if you were born over in the Middle East, most likely uh, you'd be a Muslim. And so, you know, the reason you're a Christian isn't because you believe in Christ. The reason you're a Christian is because you were born in Michigan and your parents were born there and they were taught Christianity. Whereas if you'd have been born in Islam, uh, you'd, be, you'd be Islamic. Now, I'm not suggesting that our upbringing doesn't affect the choices that we make. I'm just suggesting that's an argument that sometimes people give. And the, and the argument really is, is there is no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, your answers and, and the things that you do are going to be based on a number of things. Well, uh, the things that we do oftentimes are based on how we were raised, but that doesn't mean anything regarding absolute truth. If I was raised to believe that 2 plus 2 is always 8, uh, I probably with confidence would, would give the answer of 8 for 2 plus 2, but that doesn't change absolute truth. But we hear those types of arguments all the time. And again, people say there's no such thing as absolute truth, but for them to even make that statement is an absolute statement. And so therefore, even that is inconsistent. Although there are many people who do not believe in absolute truth, or at least some, I guess that, that would probably be a, a better way to say it. There are some who do not believe in absolute truth. If you go back to Sunday's lesson, I think you'll find that what I said is, is the real issue is not that the majority of the world does not believe in absolute truth. Uh, I think the problem really is, is that many do not know how to determine what is absolute truth. Uh, and so if you were to spend some time with a number of these people studying whatever the subject was in, in dispute, uh, oftentimes you would find that they would say that, well, technically there is really an absolute answer. Let's, let's use for morality. I think the majority of people would say, well, you know, sometimes killing is right and sometimes it's wrong. But if you got down to an absolute truth and you, you begin to talk about, is it, is it ethically moral to kill innocent people? I think the majority of people would say, no, the absolute truth is, is that that's not acceptable. Well, as I begin to think a little bit about this, the importance of truth, uh, and many people's view on whether or not there is absolute truth or not absolute truth, I began to think a little bit about Pilate. I think Pilate had a very similar approach and misunderstanding to truth as many do today. 
Uh, if you go back to John 18, 38, you'll find where Pilate said, what is truth? And I think that oftentimes is what many people today think or even say, you know, what is truth based on your perspective? Or what is truth based on someone else's perspective? Like many today, Pilate had neither a, an understanding for the foundation of truth, nor did he really have the understanding of the importance of truth in his life. And again, I think that relates to many people today. I think many people, they really don't have an understanding of the foundation of truth, and they also don't have an understanding of how important that truth is to them individually. But for those desiring to understand the importance of truth, a basic understanding can be found in a number of passages. What we're going to do today is really look at two different sets of passages. Uh, I'm going to start off in Philippians chapter 3. So if you will, go on over to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at the very first three verses. Uh, and that's going to give us some spiritual safeguards uh, that we can have through truth. Again, going back to talk about the importance of truth. And then we're going to go on over to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at verses 11 through 13 because we'll focus first on the spiritual safeguards we have through truth, uh, but then we're going to look at the results of those who are faithful to the truth. And I think it's really probably best to break it down in that way. Go on over to Philippians chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. And let's notice what Paul tells the church. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He then says, To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. What are we talking about here? Well, I'm going I'm to emphasize for just a little bit the repetition of truth. Uh, there are many probably who listen to sermons from, uh, let's say, different religious groups. Uh, and they might often find within some of these groups that they oftentimes will teach the same thing over and over and over again. Now, I try not to do that, but certainly within my lessons, you will find that I repeat a number of times basic foundational truths. And for some who might listen to uh, the sermons over and over and over again, they may say, you know, he, he, he's continuously teaching on this. Uh, he's taught on it enough. Maybe he could teach on something else. And we should. We should continue to grow. But the foundational truths or the repetition of truth uh, are things that we need to continue to look at over and over and over again. And that's really what Paul is saying here. And he says, it's not grievous for me to continue to write these things to you, the same things, over and over and over again. And I think what Paul was letting them know was, and really this is a basic foundational truth for all of us as Christians, it's extremely important for us as Christians to continue to repeat over and over and over again and to uh, study over and over and over again that which has been given to man. And I'm talking about the inspired word here. We're talking about the scriptures. Repetition is important. We know that when we're children, right? How do we teach children to do things? Well, we, we teach them by repetition. It's the same thing for, uh, for our animals. We teach them the same thing over and over and over again. Now listen to Psalms 119. The psalmist writes, With my whole heart have I sought thee, Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Now, let me pause for a minute. You may ask yourself, how is it that we keep ourselves from wandering from the Lord's commandments? Notice verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. You think the psalmist hid, hid the Lord's inspired word in his heart by reading it once and then going on to do whatever? Well, the answer is no. The way that he hid this in his heart 
was to continue to over and over and over again spend time meditating and thinking about and studying the inspired word. We're talking about repetition. We're talking about memorization. Now, as we begin to talk about the importance of truth, and certainly this is a foundational element, it's important for us to not only have heard it, but to actually know it uh, over and over and over again. Now, why is it so important that we that we repeat the truth to ourselves, that we memorize it? Well, we've already begun to show a little bit about the importance of truth. There is such thing as absolute truth, uh, and that could be that could really be shown in a number of ways, and I'm not going to focus so much on disproving the argument of absolute truth. That's been done a number of times in debates. Uh, there is such thing as absolute truth. As I touched on last Sunday, uh, absolute truth is found in the standard, which is the Word of God. And I would encourage you, if you're just picking this up, please go back to the previous lesson. There is such thing as absolute truth. We certainly need to understand it and to memorize it and repeat it over and over and over again. And the answer may be, Maybe why. Um, I think one of the most beneficial things that I probably did in school, and, and I'll admit I was not very good at it, uh, still not near as good as I'd like to be, was to memorize verses. Why is it so important for us to repeat the Word of God and to memorize over and over and over again? One of the things that it lets us do is to recognize error. Now, I mentioned once before that when they teach people how to spot counterfeit bills, they don't try to show them all the different types of counterfeit bills. What they do is, is they give them the real thing, a real, a real uh, bill, like a $100 bill, and they have them study that bill over and over and over again until they know it inside and out. And the reason is, is because if they know the truth, they can easily spot any type of error, right? They don't have to study all the different types of error. They just need to study truth. And if they know truth, they can, they can distinguish error. Well, that's the reason we need to... Uh, repetitiously continue to look at the truth over and over and over again. Why? Well, it helps us to recognize error. Let's go to the second verse here in Philippians chapter 3. We'll also, actually also look at verse 3. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Well, you may, be, you may be saying to yourself, what exactly is this talking about? And certainly we need to go back and keep it in context. Who are these dogs that he's talking about, and, and what's he dealing with? Well, the, the group that Paul is referring to here would have been those falsely proclaiming that a person really had to come to the faith of Christianity through the faith of Judaism. The idea was, again, according to these Judaizers, that you needed to be circumcised according to the law of Moses and then you could come into the law of Christ. And what was happening was these people were being deceived. Now, we just looked at the warning there in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, but notice this warning in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. There are those who cannot simply recognize error. And if you cannot recognize error because you don't know truth, oftentimes you are going to be deceived, right? Now, some have referred back to these Judaizers, and I touched on this last Sunday, but I want to touch on it again. 
Some have referred to these Judaizers as legalists, right? And they use it in a very derogatory term. Uh, they want to say, well, you know, these people were so focused on the law of Moses, uh, they were legalistic about everything, and they carried that legalism into Christianity. And so what you had were basically Christian legalists who were still holding on to the law of Moses. Well, here's a valid question we have to ask as we're looking at people who can't recognize error. <clears throat> were these Judaizers legalists? That's a valid question. Certainly what they're doing here and what they're teaching is not accurate, but were they teaching it because they were legalists, right? Well, let's focus in for just a second on this word Judaizer. It comes from a Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. It's a word that we actually find over in Galatians 2, verse 14, where Paul describes how he had confronted Peter for forcing the Gentile Christians to Judaize. And now again, the Judaizers, they taught that in order for a Christian to be truly in a righteous relationship with God, he had to conform to the Mosaic Law. He had to specifically be circumcised as basically as the Jews were required. Uh, and that was part of the process for salvation. Now, again, you're not going to find that anywhere in your Bible, but that's what the Judaizers were teaching. They were teaching that the Gentiles, in essence, had to become Jewish proselytes first, uh, and then they could come to Christ uh, and become a Christian. But here's the thing. The doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of Old Testament and New Testament law. Uh, and the false doctrine was really dealt with over in Acts chapter 15, and it was condemned even in the book of Galatians. And so let's go back to the question, were these Judaizers legalists? And as I pointed out in a lesson taught by Brother John, uh, which you can find here on our, uh, on our website, these Judaizers, it's not that they were legalists. What these guys were were false teachers. As I mentioned this weekend, the mandate for the keeping of the law, whether you lived as a Jew under the old law or whether you're a Christian living under the New Testament, that has always clearly been taught. Listen to 1 John 2, 3 through 5. And before I read that, let me say, because it has clearly been taught that we have to obey truth, that goes back to this lesson of the importance of truth. Listen to 1 John 2, 3 through 5. And I cited this this weekend. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. The keeping of the law has always been taught, but the mixing of Old Testament and New Testament law was never taught. And so the problem with the Judaizers was not that they were legalists, the problem was is that they were teaching a false doctrine. They were false teachers. Now, again, I remember I, I mentioned part of the reason in memorization of Scripture and continuing to read our Scriptures every day is so that we can recognize error. Unfortunately, you had some here who they're being taught error and, and they couldn't even recognize it. Well, again, the problem with the Judaizers is not that they were legalists, it's that they were teaching false doctrine. Now let's go on over to Philippians 3.3 3 again and focus in on that because we're going to talk about rejoicing in true worship. There are many different forms of worship that are out there. Uh, different religious groups relig uh, worship in different ways. Notice Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. Now this is the circumcision made not with hands. 
He says, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul clarifies here that true circumcision, he's talking about those who are, uh, have the circumcision of the heart, genuine Christians, true Christians, that's characterized not by a, by a cutting away of the flesh, it's, it is characterized by the attitude of the heart. Listen to uh, John 4, 23-24. Now, most of you are familiar with this passage. This is where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And notice what He says here. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now again, we started off this lesson where some may say, and Pilate did, what is truth? Well, the answer to that question again is in John 17, 17. His word is truth. True spiritual worship is going to help us to direct our lives and to give us strength, but that true worship is defined by His word, which is truth. Again, John 17, 17. Many don't know the truth, and as we mentioned earlier, if they don't know the truth, they can't recognize error. And because they can't recognize error, they're not worshiping according to the Word or to truth. And therefore, again, what we have is really just like what we had in the account there with the Judaizers. We have people that teach things which are, are not correct, and we have people then who believe it and then do it. And the problem is, is because of their lack of the truth, or they don't even realize the importance of truth, they're then worshiping in a way which is which is unscriptural, which is sinful. Now, certainly, we know that uh, our lives are filled with a lot of hazards. I think today, in today's climate, people are, are really worried about uh, COVID-19, right? They're worried about physical things. Well, it's not just the physical hazards that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. In reality, we deal with a number of spiritual hazards. Uh, false worship would be one of those spiritual hazards that that people could fall into and involve themselves in. The same as uh, false belief pertaining to Scripture. Again, another false hazard. We need to be aware of all sin. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, "...and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil." Well. Let's kind of break this down a little bit. Certainly, I would say anyone who is a Christian or claims to be a Christian, they would want to be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Uh, and you may define these wicked men in a worldly way. Oftentimes, people look at wicked men as those who kill or do whatever. We could define these people who are wicked as those who have not faith. Now, when we talk about faith, we're talking about the faith of the Bible, right? Uh, Jude 1.3, we know that the faith had been delivered. There is a system of faith. It's our New Testament. That's what we live by. People who do not have that faith, they oftentimes are involved in things which are unscriptural. They will condone things which are unscriptural. Let me say this. I'm sure that there are those who are atheists or agnostics that the world would define as good people. What I mean is, is they don't steal. They don't uh, they don't do a number of things that the world would consider to be immoral. Uh, but according to the faith, there are things they must do to be pleasing to God, and they may not do those things. 
So even though they may not be considered immoral or uh, they may not be considered evil according to the world standard, if they're not doing those things to be pleasing to God, the things required by God, they're in the same situation. They're still considered wicked because they have not the faith. Now, again, I'm going back to the faith of the Bible. Uh, now, let's hit the, the third verse here, the second portion of this passage. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. How does He do that? We touched on that a little bit this last weekend. Also, He does that through His inspired Word. Every single person can have faith and live according to the faith when they've studied their Scripture. That gets us back to the very first point, talking about repetition of God's Word, where we can thereby recognize error. And because we know truth and recognize error, we then can live in a faithful relationship with God. So what is our safeguard ultimately? Well, the safeguard ultimately is the Word of God. And again, I'd go back to John 17, 17, or um, you can look at, uh, write down Luke 8, 11. The seed is the Word of God. You want to plant Christians, you want to make new Christians, you've got to have the Word of God. And again, that's how faith comes, by hearing Romans 10, 17. Okay? Now, let's go on over to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at two different sets of passages. And really, again, I just gave through the points there, but we have repetition of truth, we have recognition of error, we have rejo rejoicing in true worship. All of those, again, go back to the importance of truth in our lives. You can't do any of those things without the emphasis on truth. Now, what is really the result of truth? Well, let's begin to look at Hebrews chapter 4. The Hebrews writer tells us that when it comes to keeping His Word, we're talking about God's Word, and God's Word not only tells us what it is that we ought to be doing as followers of God, but it also details out the promises of God. And here's the thing. God's not like a lot of people today. Um, let me give you an example. I had in my secular work, I had someone who had promised to make a commitment on last Friday, uh, and, and they just didn't follow through. Uh, we, we made the commitment. We confirmed that uh, we were going to have... Uh, a meeting and some, some certain things were going to take place, and they just didn't follow through. God is not like that when He makes promises. When God makes promises, we know that they, they are true and they are going to be fulfilled. Okay, Listen to Hebrews 4.11. Let us labor, therefore, who's the us we're talking about? We're talking about faithful Christians. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, if you were to go back to verse 1 here, you'd see that there's a promise that remains of entering into God's rest. Uh, there's at least 10 times in the first 11 verses that the Hebrews writer begins to speak about the promised rest for those who are Christians. But it's not just that promise of rest for the Christian. There's another promise or truth in those first 11 verses and at least, a seven at least seven times the Hebrews writer, he says in, in a number of different ways that those who are disobedient, those who are not faithful, those who are not living according uh, to uh, the Scriptures or don't believe, that they're not going to enter into this rest. Now, let me take a sidestep here for a minute. You have different groups that teach a number of different things. The Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they teach of a eternal rest for the faithful follower of Jehovah, the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, the 144,000 faithful will be up in um, paradise. 
the ones that are maybe, I guess you would define them as just slightly less faithful, but they're still faithful followers, but not as faithful as the 144. They're going to be on paradise on earth. But here's what's interesting. For those who are not faithful, for those who are unbelievers, they are going to cease to exist, right? So uh, they don't teach that there's going to be really this group of people not entering into rest, uh, where the Bible teaches there's two groups, right? Those that enter into rest and then those that enter into damnation, everlasting punishment. They teach that there's just those that enter into rest and, and everybody else ceases to exist. And you have a number of people that teach different things. But the Hebrews writer makes it clear that there's those that enter into his rest and those that will not enter into his rest. And we have a number of passages defining both of those, right? Those that enter into the rest, we see that it is eternal. Uh, it would be described as really beyond wonderful, whereas those who do not enter into rest, this eternal damnation, this punishment, which is beyond horrible. And so we have this promise made, eternal rest or eternal punishment. Those are the two basic promises, I guess, I, as I would define them. The promise of entering into rest and those that come short of it because of their unbelief and disobedience, and they're going to have eternal, eternal punishment. Now, in view of those, uh, in view of the rest that's accessible by faith, and in view of the punishment that's going to come because of unbelief and disobedience, the Hebrew writer then says here in verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. What's he saying? Let me paraphrase it. Let's make sure that we're faithful and not be like the unfaithful because we want to enter into rest, but we know that they're not going to enter into rest. He's basically, he's asking and pleading with and begging his readers to please be faithful. To what? Well, to the inspired word that we have. He doesn't want them to be like those who are not faithful, for those who are not obedient. Now, the Hebrews writer is really pleading with them. And some people want to, some people don't want to, don't, don't want to heed to the the pleading and the begging and the warning. Um, you'll notice that in every sermon I've ever given, I've always given how to become a Christian. And I, I'm certain that there are people that hear how to become a Christian and, and they don't agree with it. And I'm literally pleading and begging with them to one, become a Christian, and then two, to be faithful and to live according to the Word. Some people, they don't want to listen to the inspired Word. They want to simply ignore what our inspired Scriptures teach. They they refuse to obey. Some, they doubt what God says. Again, you've got those who are agnostic. You know, they, they may say, oh, I'm not as, the atheist outright denies it. Uh, the agnostic may say, well, I'm not really sure. You know, I, I doubt. I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's not. I don't disbelieve, but I don't believe either. And so I doubt what he says. Uh, and because of that, they, they will not obey. Some people think they're exempt to the warning. What I mean is, is uh, I can preach about, for example, um, the dangers of fornication or adultery or marriage, divorce, and remarriage, unscriptural uh, remarriage. And some people may hear me quote the verses, and it's very clear. There's, 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 it's not a complicated subject. You've only got a few verses that really... 
um, you've got a few verses that really just nail it down to where it's not misunderstood, you know, where it's hard to understand. And yet some people will hear that and they'll say, well, you know, I really don't think that applies to me because, you know, where I go to church, the, the minister said it's fine. Uh, and I know, I know of examples of that. Um, I'm not going to really teach on that lesson here, but since I used it as an example, if you don't know the standard for marriage, divorce, and remarriage, go on over and uh, look at Matthew 19, 1 through 9. The only reason you can divorce your spouse and remarry scripturally is if you have put them away for, forn for fornication, for adultery, if they've been unfaithful to you. You can't divorce your wife because you're tired of her and then go marry someone else and think God will be pleased. That's not allowed. Uh, as a matter of fact, when he explained it to his disciples in the next couple verses, he was talking about being eunuch for the kingdom's sake. Uh, the, the apostles said, man, if this is so, it's not good to marry. They understood that. There's very stringent requirements for marriage. Now, that's not what, much, what a lot of people in, in the religious world around us teach. Uh, but again, the idea is, is there are some people, they'll hear it and they'll say, well, I really don't think that applies to me. Well, here's the thing. We can't sit and argue with God. He's given us His inspired Word. And we can't think for a second that we can ignore His Word without consequences, right? If it says don't steal, I can't think that I can go through life stealing. The, there's a heavy importance on the Word of God. Now, I've already started to show that importance as it relates to the Christian, but it, it doesn't just relate to the Christian, it relates to everybody. There's a heavy importance on the Word of God. You can't ignore the commandments of God, the expectations of God, and think that you're going to get away scot-free. Now, listen to Hebrews 4.12. And here's the thing. We know that His Word is, is inspired. Uh, I could prove that by doing a, a couple of studies. As we talk about the inspired Word of God, and we know that it is trustworthy, and we could go back and look at all of the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, and we can see the completion of those prophecies being fulfilled throughout the New Testament. And so we know that it's inspired. We know that it is trustworthy. And again, those promises that I mentioned earlier, we know that those are true. We know we can trust them, and we know that they're going to be fulfilled. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I think a lot of people, they begin to get confused as you look here at Hebrews 4.12. What's really going on? He talks about the Word of God being quick. Um, I've mentioned this before. Things that are dead, they're not quick. Right? Things that are alive... Uh, and healthy, those things are quick. He's talking about the Word of God being alive. <clears throat> it's the same inspired Word that fell, on, that fell on the disobedient ears of the Israelites as they were wandering there in the wilderness. It is the same inspired Word that was spoken by David to the people of his day. And it is the same inspired Word that the Hebrews writer here is giving to these Christians. We have had the inspired Word being given... Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, we have the inspired Word given to us in the New Testament. Uh, we know that it was, it was uh, at one point completed, and there's no more inspiration being given or revealed, and that's another study we could spend some time on. But the very first thing that the Hebrews writer says here is this, that the Word of God is living, is that it's, 
It's active. Now, the word living here, it's a present tense verb. It's not saying that people are continuously giving us more inspired uh, teaching. And the reason, guys, logically, again, we touched on this. If people were continuing to give revelation that was unknown to man, that would be recorded and it would be placed in our Bible just with our other inspired scriptures. We don't have that going on. We're not adding to our Bible on a daily basis. Sorry about that. So when he talks about the word being living, that present tense verb is talking about continuous action. The idea is, is that it's alive and it continues to be alive. The word is active. It continues to have power, to have energy or strength. And the point really is this. The Bible's not just some dead, as some people say, love letter. How many of you guys have heard someone say that? The Bible's just a, it's just a dead love letter. I, I've never read a love letter that has murder and circumcision and, and war and all of those things in it. It's not, it's not a dead love letter, and it's not a dead letter. It's not some word that was once relevant, but it's, not, it's no longer valid to us anymore. Uh, His word is living, it's active, it is foundational because it is inspired, and so it is, it is applicable to every person, every individual, in every generation, in every place. All right? In Hebrews 3.12, God is described as the living God. He's eternal. He is all-powerful. He is, he, he is, He has been, and He will always be. And if you go over and you look at Hebrews 6.18... Uh, you're going to find that it's impossible for God to lie. That leads us back to the foundation of truth or the importance of truth. Because He can never lie and because His Word is always applicable, uh, it's never going to lose its power or its authority. Now, here's the sad part. Many people, I would say all people claiming to be Christians, probably all of them have a Bible. But I would also go so far as to say that the majority of people who have a Bible do not look to that revealed Word of God as their authority. And let me go back and use myself for an example. I'm not trying to pick on anyone. But when I was raised as a Catholic, I, I did not use the Bible as my source of authority. Uh, I believed that God was everlasting, but I didn't understand the everlasting authority of His revealed Word and so if you were to ask me back when I was a Catholic, is it okay for people to divorce their spouse uh, if they're angry with them? I would have probably said, yeah, I think probably so. Uh, and if you were to ask me today, can someone divorce their spouse just because they're angry with them? I would, I would say absolutely not. Matthew 19, 1 through 9. Matthew 5, 32. And I would begin to cite the verses, right? Based on His in, eternal inspired Word, which is applicable to everybody. Because it doesn't lose its authority, Right? It is, a, it is an active word with all the power and authority as if God was standing here His very self, right? And so when He says that His rest remains for people to enter into, I know that that promise is true. And when He says that those who are not faithful are, are not going to enter into His rest, I know that that promise also is true. And in essence, what is happening is... is his Word is giving us the dividing line. That's the importance of the Word. It gives us the dividing line. Those that are faithful enter into rest. Those that are not faithful, they will not enter into rest. The Hebrews writer further goes on 
and says that his word, the Word of God, His inspired Word, is sharper than a two-edged sword. Again, the Word is, it is able to penetrate. That's probably the best way to say it. It's sharp enough that it can just penetrate air. I think as I mentioned last time we were talking about this, I said the truth can just cut right through air. And His Word is so sharp it cuts through air. Air Again, the idea is it's not vague. It doesn't change based on circumstance or people. And again, that goes back to the, where I first started. There is no such thing as... Um, or, for those who say there is no such thing as absolute truth, I know for a fact that that's not accurate because, again, I've already shown that God's Word, it is inspired and it is always applicable to all men in all generations in all places. And so His Word cuts through that argument of there's no such thing as absolute truth. There is absolute truth regarding morality. There is absolute truth regarding how it is that we worship. We touched on that a little bit earlier. Uh, again, we see that there's the need for us to have repetition, constantly studying the Word of God so that we can recognize error so that we can worship according to uh, God's will, and, and again, so that we can enter into this promised rest. Look at again at Hebrews 4.12. And I, I would go to say that a lot of people probably don't use these two sets of passages together, but I think they fit so nicely. Again, he said in verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What he's talking about here sums up all of, all of man, what man is. He talks about the soul and the spirit, and he's talking about the spiritual aspect of men. How many of you have heard people say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? Well, for many of those people, that would be accurate, right? They're not religious. They don't live according to a religion, like the faith that's once been delivered, Jude 1.3, the faith but they are spiritual, so they're interested in spiritual things. The Word cuts right through our soul and spirit. It divides the uh, intents for the spiritual aspect of man. He then mentions the joints and the marrow. That's talking about the physical aspect of, of man. And then he also says the thoughts and intentions of the heart, talking about the emotions of the man. The Word of God cuts through everything, and it affects our spiritual nature, it also affects our physical nature. There are certain things I physically ought not to be out doing, right? I can't go out and commit fornication or adultery. I can't go out and murder. I can't go out and steal. Um, and it also, again, cuts even through regarding emotion. A lot of people think that religion is driven by emotion. That is not right. Religion is driven through intellect, which oftentimes feeds our emotion. Right? But religion is not driven by emotion. Emotions can be wrong. Uh, emotions can misguide somebody. The Word of God is able to penetrate every part of man's being. It's capable of sifting through and, and dividing or revealing the heart of man. I can go back and I can, I can talk to somebody about morality and people will say, you know, I, th I think it's okay to do this. Right? I think it's okay to murder. I think it's okay to fornicate. I think it's okay to to put your spouse away for whatever reason you want. And that, that based side by side with the Word of God allows me to then begin to look at their heart. It reveals what their heart is. 
And oftentimes what it actually does is it lets you know that they really could care less or they don't know about the will of God. And here's the thing though. Man, they can't hear or read the Word of God without being affected and then demonstrating in some way that effect through their actions. And what I mean is, is this, and it goes back to what we touched on earlier. There are those that will hear the Word of God and then they were going to make one of two decisions. One, they're going to be faithful. They'll continue to be faithful and they'll enter into that rest. Or two, they will hear the Word of God and they will reject it. They'll reject it because it doesn't agree with their current religious place that they attend, their teachings. They'll reject it because it doesn't agree with their ideas. Or they'll reject it because they like the idea of universalism and, and being able to do what it is I want whenever it is that I want. But again, why is it that the Word of God is so powerful and penetrating? Well, let's go on over to Hebrews 4.13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The reason that the Word of God is living and active and penetrating and piercing and is able to make judgments about the intents and and the condition of the human heart is, it be, is because the Word reflects the nature of God Himself. And, and it should. It should because it's His inspired Word. We can try to conceal our inner being, our thoughts. We can try to conceal those things that we do. I've mentioned before, have you ever noticed that a majority of sinful things take place in the dark? Right? We try to hide those from other people. We can try to hide those things from ourselves. We can try to deceive ourselves. But as we've already mentioned, nothing's, nothing is going to escape the all-seeing eye of God, and certainly it's not going to escape the scrutiny of God's will. And it's with Him, not our fellow men, or not even with ourselves, with our own conscience, that our final reckoning is going to be made. There are a lot of people that would say, well, you know, I can do that. It doesn't bother my conscience. It may not bother your conscience. However, because it's not in alignment with the will of God, and that's why it's so important to know the truth, you need to understand that there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a reckoning. Remember, we've already talked about there's two promises. There's the promise of an eternal salvation in heaven, and then there's the promise for those who are not faithful or obedient who are not going to receive that blessing. And again, that standard, which we touched on this week, that's going to be uh, understood by knowing and living according to the word of God by which will be judged. John 12, 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. <clears throat> now, much of this is really a stepping off from where I was at last week, and, and the, two really go, the two lessons go hand in hand. But again, the word's going to be the standard by which I'm going to be judged. So here's the question. Did we obey the Word of God or His standard, or did we not obey His standard? And which promise I'm going to receive is going to be based on that. Did I receive it and obey it, or did I reject it uh, and not choose to receive it? Now that takes me back to Hebrews 4.11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. We have a number of examples throughout the Old Testament where, let's just use the Israelites, where they were told to do certain things and, and to live a certain way, and we have examples of their unbelief. The unbelief was shown by the fact that they didn't obey God. Now, you'll hear people today say, well, you know, 
you can't you can't judge people based on works, right? You know, God doesn't do that. God simply He sees your heart. That's what you hear a lot of people say. He saw their heart in the Old Testament, and guess what? Their actions proved what their heart was or how their heart was. Their heart wasn't in alignment with the will of God. We know that because of their actions, and they were condemned because of that, right? And the Hebrews writer says you need to learn from their example. The example is simply you need to know the Word of God, you need to do the will of God, because you're going to be, you're going to be judged based on that. And those that do will enter into His rest, and those that do not will not enter into His rest. And so if our focus has to be on knowing truth and then obeying truth, then we have to be knowledgeable enough, as I mentioned earlier, to not be deceived so that we can recognize error. And thereby, again, we go back to the fact that hopefully you can understand the importance of truth. I know that this was kind of really uh, a secondary study based off what we looked at this weekend, <clears throat> but I think it's certainly important because, again, as I, as I touched off, I don't think the majority of people argue the fact that there's, there's not an absolute morality. I work with a number of people who believe the Bible and yet believe different things. And so I don't think oftentimes with them when I talk with them, it's, it's, it's not that they don't believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. In many cases, they've either not studied it um, or that they just really don't know. But they would, if, if you were to ask most people is that claim to be Christians, if you were to ask most people, is God's Word uh, the final answer on what is moral and not moral, I think the majority of people would say yes. They agree that the importance is found in truth. The problem is, is that many people simply do not know what truth is. What I want for us as Christians is to establish the fact that yes, His Word is truth. I have memorized it and studied so much, that was our first point, that I recognize error, that was our second point, that I can worship according to His will, that was really our third point, and that I can live faithful so that I can enter into His promised rest. That was our fourth point as we moved over to the book of Hebrews. Now, as I draw this to a close, my concern would be for anybody watching this who is not yet a Christian. If you're here and you're, or if you're watching this and you're not yet a Christian or if you're not sure, again, let me go back and please, I would encourage you, go back, read the entire book of Acts, Look at the conversion accounts and write down what people did. And then compare that to what people teach today. Today, the majority of people teach the sinner's prayer. You will not find that anywhere in the New Testament. What you do find in the conversion accounts is people were being taught the Word of God. You had men going out, evangelists, other Christians, and they were teaching the Word of God. And that's because that's how faith comes, by hearing. Romans 10, 17, right? I can't, I can't know the faith of God, and I can't know how to be a faithful Christian if I've never heard or read the Word of God. And so they were going around and teaching. The reason they were teaching is they were trying to instill belief. Now, Jesus made it clear that if you didn't believe that He was the Messiah, you're going to die in your sins. You have to have faith. That was John 8, 24. You have to have faith, Hebrews eleven six. They were also focusing heavily on repentance. You can go back and look at Peter as he called them to repent, Acts 2, 38. Jesus talked an awful lot about sin. He had commanded all men everywhere to repent, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Paul taught that over at Mars Hill to the Gentiles there in Acts 17, 30. And so you need to have an understanding of sin in your life. Again, to, to know what sin is, you've got to go back to the importance of truth. 
right? There's going to have to be some serious teaching that goes on. But once you understand that truth and you understand that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and that the consequence for sin is death, Romans 6.23, you need to repent of your sins. And then you need to confess Christ, Romans 10.9 and 10. Uh, and you, you can look at that example of Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, he confessed Christ. Um, and then you need to be immersed in water for the remission of sins. Jesus, as I touched on this weekend, makes a declarative statement uh, that those that, that you need to believe and you need to be baptized and those that, that will not, that believe not, or those that disobey, which is what that is in Mark 16, 16, they're going to be damned. Uh, Peter teaches the same thing over in Acts 2, 38. Uh, as I touched on this last weekend, baptism is how you get into Christ. Romans 6, 3, and 4, it's a burial, burial in water, but it's how you get into Christ. Uh, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Uh, and so you can't get into Christ. You can't faith into Christ, right? As many people teach, just faith alone, right? There's no such thing as faith alone. Again, uh, John 2, 24. You need to live according to the perfect law of liberty, uh, John 1, 25. And that perfect law of liberty describes to us how people became Christians and how people lived after they became a Christian. So once you've heard the word, believed the word, repented of your sins, confessed Christ, and been immersed in water, you're added to the church by the Lord Himself. Acts 2, verse 47. Now again, it's important for you to know the truth if you want to obey truth. Uh, and so if you're watching this, you've never heard that. There's some things that you really need to study. I'd love to study with you. Uh, or I'll help you find a faithful congregation to study with you so that you can learn truth and obey the truth. Or if you're a Christian, again, continue to dig into the Word. Know the Word. You need to know the Word so you can recognize error and recognize when you've fallen into sin. If you have fallen into sin in any regard, please turn from that, repent of it, and again, walk in the light. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. Continue to be faithful. Revelation 2.10. If there's a way that we can help you in any way now that we've spent some time talking about the importance of truth, I do urge you please contact us either via email or you can call us. And if there's any way that we can assist you, we will.